This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with sociologists Edwin Amenta and Neil Karen about their fascinating book, Rough Draft of History, A Century of U.S. Social Movements in the News, from Princeton University Press. Edwin is professor of sociology and political science at UC Irvine, and Neil is associate professor of sociology at UNC Chapel Hill. In this book, Edwin and Neil examine the newspaper coverage of 100 significant American organizations as they appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and the Wall Street Journal. From these vast data sets, patterns emerge about the nature of news coverage and its effects. In the latter section of the book, the authors also examine how movements and media are changing in the 21st century. Edwin and Neil, it's great to have you both on the New Books Network. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So first question, as sort of standard with New Books Network, is I was wondering if you could both tell me a little bit about your respective backgrounds and how you came to write this book together. Let me say a few words about how I got here. In the study of social movements, people tend to do these various case studies. And uh, Neil and I together were working on a case study of the Townsend Plan, a organization in the 1930s that pushed for old age pensions. And this was back when you had to look at the newspapers on microfilm. And so you'd be spinning the microfilm and look at the newspapers. And um, I noticed during this examination that, boy, they were in the news a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And then wondered, was this a lot relative to other movement organizations? So we had sent some queries around to lists of people in the social movement area you know, asking them about this and did they have a list of relevant movement organizations? And no one really had one. Everyone in the area, not everyone, but most people know something about one movement or one set of organizations. And so we had to kind of put together this list and then somewhat um, fortunately it became possible to examine everything digitally through ProQuest historical newspapers. And so it was a matter of trying to put this list together and figure out, well, where did uh, the Townsend plan stand? 
And then once we had that, we figured out, well, no one really compares across all these different movements and movement organizations. And this was a golden opportunity to do that. And so um, it was a little bit, oh, uh, I don't know, uh, kind of a random walk into it. Yeah. So it, it began back when we were both at New York University and I was a grad student in the sociology department and Edwin was my advisor. And yeah, as he mentioned, it was the, you know, sort of exploring, exploring, you know, starting with one movement. And it definitely sort of as the project grew up along with like digital archives. So what began, um, you know, starting with newspaper, you know, the physical copies or the microfilm versions, because like that was all they had. Um, and then, right, as things began to get become historical archives became available, um, uh, we transitioned to that, which made sort of new questions available, which also hints at like how long we've been working on this project, that <laughs> the sort of like internet grew up during the entire uh, uh, research process. And, you know, when did you guys actually decide to write the book? What was that sort of process like? Did you know that it was going to be a book? Was it a series of articles at first? What was that process like? Well, we started with a series of articles and then thought maybe there was a full, you know, book in it. Because in the articles, as you may know, that they often get quite technical. They're very, a little bit one-sided. But we thought there was a wider story to tell here about what was going on in the entire 20th century and and how things have changed recently. And so we thought, you know, yes, there's plenty of material for a book here if we could harness it into a more coherent story. So we moved on from having these kind of technical articles to this kind of more overarching narrative of what was happening across the 20th century with newspapers and social movements. Yeah, and one of the things about the the, the book format is that it allows one to sort of go off on longer tangents on the sort of random stuff that you find in the archives or explore things in a little, a little bit different ways. And so that was a fun sort of expansion. But yeah, it definitely began as um, sort of a series of discrete, much more sort of theoretical interests about social movement processes. Um, uh, so it's, it's been exciting to see it evolve over the decades. Right. So in it, to combine the two <laughs> questions, right, it was more than us just working on the single book for two decades. In fact, it was sort of a series of article milestones along the way. So the, this book, you know, the sort of the, the centerpiece of it is this, you know, pretty incredible data set that you put together where you, you look at 100 of the, the biggest organizations uh, and you categorize them by the social movement that they're related to. And then you look at their coverage just in general in papers and also on the front page. So uh, can you give our readers just a little bit of a, you know, uh, of an overview of some of these organizations, some of the movements they're, uh, you know, uh, they were related to uh, and just, you, you know, your kind of general uh, approach to, to taking on this data set and examining it. Right. Well, it was very difficult to figure out which organizations to search for. And so we were constantly trying to generate lists of organizations that were national and connected to movements. We had to define them in a certain way, you know, to have them separated out from interest 
group organizations like trade organizations and whatnot. And then once we had the list, we had to figure out how the newspapers referred to them because sometimes they would refer to them with acronyms or with kind of nicknames. You would have the bonus army, for instance, is something is a term that is used when the actual organization is something called like the bonus expeditionary force. And so you'd have to come up with all the different ways they might be referred to in the news and then, um, and then search for them and get all the article information about them and so forth. And so it was a matter of really figuring out it. We focus on a hundred organizations, but we looked at hundreds of organizations to uh, to see whether they appeared in the news. Some of them, many of the organizations we examined didn't appear at all in the news, and many of them appeared two or three times. But the hundred that we focus on were in the news quite a lot and made a big impression on the public. And so they were dominant in their important years of attention. Yeah, again, sort of one of the fun things about going to the archives is reading about and the sort of iterative process of figuring out who was the most, you know, prominent organizations um, in different time periods to make sure we weren't missing anything Um, or and not even the most prominent, but like who was all the sort of set of players that were active and around and getting coverage. Um, And so I think, you know, a lot of folks can think about the, you know, the African-American civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s and sort of begin to name off some of the organizations there of, uh, you know, like the uh, SNCC or CORE or SELC. Um, But things get a little bit uh, sort of like less obvious when you're talking about like the League of American Wheelmen um, and their sort of volume of coverage that they were getting in the, you know, turn of the, you know, prior century um, or even... Um, you know, fun little organizations that sort of are more prominent, but like um, wouldn't necessarily have thought to run to. So um, the sort of expansion of that and um, and sort of then using newspaper articles to find from one organization, you know, that were mentioned in one newspaper article, you see like, oh, in fact, right, they were competing against the association against the prohibition amendment. So we have to check out like, oh, there's another organization to add to the list. Um, so tragically, it wasn't a come up with a list once and then sort of do it. It was come up with the list all, you know, and grow the list um, and then find out which is the top 100 organizations. Or is it actually the top 102 organizations? Because two new ones snuck in sort of right at the edge. Um, and then, right, plus the sort of difficulties of, um, as Edwin mentioned, the sort of like search term issues that you uh, you know, norms about journalism have changed tremendously. So now like the New York Times and the Washington Post are all great about like listing out usually like the full name of an organization and then sort of have a common pattern. But certainly at the beginning part of the century, these norms were less established. And so, um, and sort of what was conventional wisdom. So it might just be like, yeah, oh, right. That was the GAR or right. And that would all, you know, GAR has local meeting and and the, the readers would know that was the Grand Army of the Republic. Um, but um, we wouldn't necessarily know going in. And so to try and figure out like, right, not, but not all mentions of GAR refer to this organization. So um, sort of filtering down and figuring out what are they actually talking about this organization um, is a really messy process uh, that, that evolved over time. You know, it's very interesting. You have this, um, 
this table in the book where you have you list the top 25 most covered movement organizations uh, from that just throughout the, the entirety of the 20th century. And what just immediately jumps out is how many, about half of the top 25 organizations were the movement they're involved in was labor. And I think that, you know, in the 21st century, obviously there's a kind of a, a labor resurgence, but it's not really something that I think people would think about or be aware of. Like you, you do mention in the book that some of the, the social movements that people tend to focus on are not labor. So uh, w- what did you kind of see with, uh, with, with labor movements and labor organizations uh, from, from the data and what about their newspaper coverage and the prominence of the newspaper coverage in the 20th century did you learn? It was interesting to see, as you mentioned, when people study social movements, they tend to think of some of the bigger ones like the um, African-American Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Movement, um, the uh, Environmental Movement, Anti-War Movements. But when we were looking in to it closely, most of the discussion, or at least the plurality of discussion was about the labor movement, especially in the middle of the century, where they really, these organizations really dominated discourse. They were in the news quite a bit for various strikes and labor actions. We have a little um, picture of the New York Times headline that has the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom the, the day after that happens. And, you know, of course, it's, you know, three tier headline across the board there. And photos and whatnot, but on the kind of on the left side of the, of the front page is a, is a story about a rail strike. And it's been, it was in the news for maybe two weeks, this potential rail strike and the fact they're trying to end this rail strike with congressional action. And many of the people in Congress couldn't meet with some of the leaders of the, of the March on Washington because they were still working on settling this deal. And so labor was in the news quite a bit, quite a bit. And the decline of the labor movement has really led to a decline of the presence of movement actors in the public sphere, really. The other thing that, you know, really jumps out about this list too, uh, this table just is a great, I think, overview of the movements. And the other thing that jumps out about it as well is how some of these, you know, these movements, people typically, when they think social movement, they probably think left left wing or progressive, but a lot of these are right wing and conservative. So uh, I was wondering if you could also speak about it, you know, the, the this kind of presumption perhaps that social movements are all left wing. If you look at the most covered movements, you do see the left ones in there, the ones that are associated with the left, but there are right wing ones that are really quite important and ones that are a little bit hard to categorize. For instance, nativist movements have been prominent all through the 20th century and currently as well. And so this is a recurrent theme in news coverage of movements. You have the second version of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, straight up to uh, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers today. So they're more or less constantly in the news um, across the century. There are some other movements, the veterans movement, um, veterans rights movements, were really quite prominent throughout the 20th century. People don't really think of them that much, but they really um, captured public discourse for quite a long time. Um, other movements, you know, as you can see from 
these are examples of movement organizations, but you think you don't really think of some of these ones that pop up quite a bit. Um, you think of, you know, things like, oh, the anti-saloon league is really was really quite important, but you don't think of them that much um, when you think of social movements. So these anti-alcohol movements and the movements that were anti-anti-alcohol really um, quite made a big impression in the 19. 19- uh, 20s and 30s, especially. I think, you know, another thing uh, that I wanted to, to ask about with these, you know, these movements and these organizations is that a lot of the ones that got a lot of newspaper coverage were highly disruptive or had some sort of disruption tactics. So what what were the tactics or the ways in which maybe news coverage and the the potential for news coverage, how, how what was the sort of the the relationship between these movements and organizations in terms of how news coverage maybe influenced or determined how uh, movement leaders thought about the types of actions that they would take. Disruption is often associated with uh, movement activity. And when we look at these organizations, they almost all of them have some kind of disruptive capacity, but quite a lot of them don't. It's interesting that when people think of movements, they think of rallies and marches and protests. But for the most part, when movements were in the news for a long period of time, they were in for maybe different types of disruption, usually um, strikes, sometimes occupations. They were in the news quite a bit for um, stuff we associate with regular institutional politics, um, different sorts of campaigns like initiatives. Sometimes they would start a third party. They were also in the news quite a bit for uh, things that aren't you don't associate with movements that much, but or their action at least, but led to really storied coverage where they were in the news for long stretches of times. They might be investigated. Their leaders might be on trial. Sometimes organizations were in the news for um, non-disruptive action altogether, just straight up civic action in the 19. 19- um, 30s and 40s, especially, you see a lot of organizations that are in the news strictly for holding meetings and um, making these kind of public interested um, claims and having speakers hold forth on various issues of the day. And so you would see uh, organizations like the League of Women Voters would be in the news quite a bit um, simply for holding meetings and 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 uh, entertaining speakers and speaking about issues of the day. You don't really see so much of that nowadays. But uh, there are various ways that movement actors were able to make big news. And only sometimes were they of these protest types. You do think of the 60s protest campaigns, and these did make big news. But there, I think one thing we tried to point out in the book was that there are many different ways of uh, inserting yourself in the news if you're a movement organization. Yeah, and to look at some of the more recent examples um, that we look at, and by more recent in the only way that like a historian or social scientist would mean of like, you know, the last two decades, um, right? Both the, you know, we think, uh, you know, the Tea Party certainly gets a lot of sort of mentions and, you know, we coded having disruptive capacity because it did hold you know, large tax day rallies around the country. And that's what it became famous for. Um, But after that, it didn't really flex its disruptive muscle very much. It more engaged in the sort of, you know, 
organization building, institution building, um, and being embedded in the Republican Party. And like so mentions to it um, sort of continued on. And so um, even when we talk about disruptive capacity, um, it is e- even those organizations that are disruptive um, often aren't getting the most, you know, most of their sustained coverage isn't because of the sort of specific action. Um, and if it is, it's 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 rarely actually good coverage that they would want. In the uh, in the book, you categorize four different types of news coverage for movement actors. Uh, there's there's good news, bad news, hard news, and soft news. Uh, I, lo- I love this uh, these these different uh, sort of categorizations. How would you sort of define these different uh, types of news coverage, and what role did they play in? in organization coverage in the 20th century and and beyond. Right. So with good news, it's essentially if the organization is in the news and gets across what it wants in the stories, a lot of times organizations will be in the news, but they won't say anything about what they want to happen, what their issue is, what the problem is they're seeking to solve. And so that's one part of it is simply being able to be covered and saying what you want. A lot of times when you see protests, for instance, they'll talk about like, what happened? Was there a clash with the police and so forth? Um, But they might not say like what the protest was actually about. Um, And so in good news, you would have that part of it. But then there's a second piece to it, which is, which is that the movement activists are also treated favorably, or at least not unfavorably in the coverage. They're, are different ways of referring to um, different activists. And sometimes they're referred to in quite negative terms. And so we try to sort that out. And so that's good news. Bad news is obviously the opposite of that, where they don't get anything across and they're treated very unfavorably with negative terminology. And good news will keep movements issues in the news and help sometimes change, alter the political agenda Um, the public conversation. And we saw that bad news led quite a bit to a tailspin for different movement organizations. They would go on trial or be investigated and soon they would be no more. If you look at um, something like the German American Alliance, which you don't think of much as no one does, but they were quite all over the news in the 1910s and one of the largest membership organizations ever. And they were investigated by Congress in 1918 during the um, First World War, and um, soon they just disbanded. They were they were kind of destroyed. You look at all the trials of the Black Panther Party in the 1970s, something similar happening. And so a lot of times the good news will kind of propel issues forward, and the bad news um, sends the organizations on this kind of downward spiral where not just the organization, but sometimes their issue gets taken down um, with them. Right. And so, again, sort of a a more recently, you know, we examine, for example, Occupy Wall Street, um, which sort of got a lot of coverage as an organization sort of when it was peaking. Um, But a lot of those were about like the encampments and, you know, where the police, you know, where they're going to stay overnight, how loud were the drums allowed to be? Um, which on the one hand is like good for the movements. And some of those even were favorable, but like that, they didn't necessarily mention like income inequality. No other, like early on, there was some articles and they certainly raised the prominence of like their issue income inequality. 
um, right? But you can see the kinds of coverage where they sometimes, you know, they talk about the movement, but maybe, you know, but but again, their issue might be absent. Um, and so getting both your issue talked about and favorably um, can be a pretty tough thing. Sort of, uh, you know, moving into looking at the relationship between coverage in the news and then also coverage and scholarship in academia, you do this this very interesting comparison of uh, these movements, their coverage in the news versus their coverage in 10 scholarly journals from 1982 to 2020. And, you know, the, the thing that, that jumps out about this um, examination is that there are certain movements the veterans' rights movements in particular that got incredible amounts of news coverage, but don't really get a lot of coverage in scholarship. Um, so, you know, I, I was wondering, you, you know, and take it in, in any direction you guys would like, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the disconnect potentially between news coverage and scholarship, uh, whether or not this is an issue, whether or not this is you know, a maybe just fertile ground for for people to look into, and uh, what your sort of takeaways were in relationship to this. We look at history journals, political science journals, sociology journals, and see which movements are covered in them, and we find basically that ones that are more recent and more left movements are more covered than ones that are not, and so somewhat older movements and more conservative are harder to label ones like veterans movements, which, which start out, you know, one way and end up a different way, you know, they become like anti-war movement, I mean, pro-war movements against the anti-war movement later, and so forth. And so ones that are a little bit hard to categorize anti-alcohol movements aren't covered, aren't um, covered by scholars as much, even though they were in the news all the time. And I think, I think you're right that it's, more of an area for people to look into because social movement theories typically um, concern all different types of movements. And there's a lot of scholarship now about right-wing movements. And so I think that gap is being filled um, pretty well. But it's, but still, there is, um, I think, some tendency to look at the more recent, the more left, the ones that um, uh, scholars are either more familiar with or maybe have better access to, possibly. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with scholarship. Scholarship in social movements is mainly a kind of case study scholarship. And so access is really quite important. Information is often quite difficult to get. And so we were mainly making that comparison to show where these gaps are, not necessarily to criticize scholarship, but to say that there are these opportunities out there to study movements that were um, quite, quite prominent and movement organizations that were in the news all the time that really haven't been looked at possibly as much as they should be. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with the, um, the bias, right, that, you know, professors are often accused of having a sort of left wing or bias or whatever. But here, I think it's much more sort of an idiosyncratic things that, you know, folks are interested in um, and the movements that they thought, um, you know, that they want to learn more about either because they really liked it, like the, you know, women's movement, African-American civil rights movement really hated it, like the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and so the movements that people have sort of mixed feelings about, and we can put here maybe like, right, our veterans or sort of no longer have any feelings about because their issue is no longer salient, sort of just get dropped because there isn't that many folks who are like interested in studying them, um, which creates maybe potentially then some theoretical holes 
for, you know, testing our various theories about whether stuff, you know, when movements are likely to have impact. Um, if it's about the high impact or, you know, the prominent movements, uh, maybe there's different outcomes or paths to publicity or paths to, um, you know, success um, among the sort of mixed movements or obscure movements. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In the book, you have a, you know, out of your, your 100 organizations, you also have a, a case study of the Townsend Plan. And I'm sure many people have not heard of the Townsend Plan before. So I wondering if you could first begin, um, you know, one of you by just giving a bit of a overview on what the Townsend Plan was uh, and, you know, just w what you, you sort of learned from your examination of the Townsend Plan uh, to sort of, you know, and using this case study just as a kind of a way to help our listeners understand uh, the relationship between social movements and news coverage. Right. The Townsend Plan is a case in point of something we were just talking about. Um, it was a leading organization in the old age pension movement in the 1930s. And it isn't really thought about much today in part because it doesn't really fit very well. Any models, as Neil was saying, you know, it's not really a left movement as such. It was very socially conservative in some ways, but it was very fiscally liberal in other ways. And it was mainly organizing older Americans and that, you know, they're not like a lot of survivors from it that are writing their story or anything. And so it, it gets kind of lost in time, but it was pretty much all over the news and it was demanding very, very generous pensions, universal pensions for all American citizens and thousands of clubs really sprang up across the country and there are 2 million people in these clubs. And so it became quite a major force, um, especially as it started to intervene in uh, congressional investigations, I mean, congressional elections in the mid-1930s. And so it, it really helped to spur the Social Security Act and that also the amendments to it that happened later that made the Social Security uh, program much more generous. So it's really an important organization in an important movement because there were many other old age pension organizations doing similar sorts of things. Um, another one pops up in our list, Ham and Eggs, which was a strictly a California organization that was trying to do something in California along the same lines. So it also is kind of interesting because it appears in good news and bad news. It was involved in um, a kind of an electioneering campaign in which it was trying to elect members of Congress to support the Townsend Plan. It was investigated by Congress. It went into a downspin. It came back uh, later to influence Social Security amendments again. So it's a kind of interesting case in that it um, it's a little bit forgotten. It was really quite consequential. It was all over the news, and it was in different types of news that helped to influence both the trajectory of the organization and the issue that it was trying to press forward. 
more anecdotally, when we um, were meeting in Edwin's office at uh, in NYU um, in New York, there was um, a banner that Edwin had acquired, purchased uh, from a Townsend Plan chapter um, and plenty of other Townsend Plan materials that he had collected from eBay, um, which is pretty much the only place that the Townsend Plan lives on. And you can like today, if, you, if, you, if you're into the Townsend and want to support the Townsend recovery plan, uh, there's some vintage <laughs> pins available for around 30 bucks a pop. Um, although not that much other materials left, I think, because Edwin bought it all. Yes, I think I'm the uh, owner of the most Townsend plan memorabilia. But you can kind of see if you do look on eBay, there is a ton of it out there that you'd be able to. If you type in Townsend plan and search for stuff that, you know, many, many items will appear Um and I do have a couple of these, you know, sweet club banners um, <laughs> that uh, are out there. But uh, many, many, there are many photos of them at their various conventions and whatnot. So, you know, these are super long panoramic photos of, you know, of hundreds of Townsend plant people going to the annual convention. They have conventions every year. And so this was something that was really a big thing and then completely went away and was almost entirely forgotten but still had a major impact. And so these are some of the stories we're trying to reclaim in a way through the book. Yeah. I think that shining a light on what was covered in the news and the, you know, then sort of forgotten helps to paint a picture of, you know, what people were just kind of experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis when they opened up their newspaper, because I think that, you know, for, for a lot of people, you know, a lot of their outside of their, their normal day-to-day -day life, a lot of their connection to the outside world and their sense of what's going on is what they read in newspaper. And if you wonder what was someone in 1930, whatever, <laughs> 35 thinking about, then it might have it very, might as well have been this. Uh, so, uh, you know, another example that you look at is you, you take a look at the Black Rights Movement in the 60s um, and you take a look at this kind of uh, this, this book, The Race Beat from 2007 from Gene Roberts and Hank Klebanoff. And uh, they, you know, if it's uh, appropriate to suggest that they kind of proffer this thesis, which I think is one that people are very uh, familiar with of this idea of, you know, this kind of heroic uh, national journalists coming and, you know, take covering, uh, you know, covering these uh, movement leaders and covering people involved in the civil rights movement. And that because of this national coverage, they helped to, uh, you know, they, they helped to win civil rights. And uh, in this book, you're, you're critical of this thesis. So what is their argument and what is your, uh, your sort of amendments to, to their, their points? Well, I don't want to, um, we don't want to play down their arguments completely because there is some truth to what they're saying that these national journalists really jumped on this story. And if you didn't have these journalists covering events in Birmingham, Selma, other places that the news would not have got out, that it wouldn't have drawn the kind of national response that was received. So there, there is truth to that story and we don't want to downplay that in any way. But they're missing quite a bit of the story, though, as well. If you think of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, the black rights movement in that era, that by the time that the newspapers jumped, the newspapers jumped on the story, 
that they really started covering it more after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So if you look at the coverage of these organizations, they're in the news more in the second half of the decade than they are in the first half. And the second half of the decade coverage is not favorable to the movement. Not overall, it's not, it's connected much to issues. It's really quite critical. If you, you know, look at the coverage of the poor people's campaign in 1968, it's really often quite negative about the encampments and whatnot. And so if you look at the coverage of the Black Panther Party, it is almost uniformly negative. And so there is a story there. And I think that Robert says, well, and Klebanoff to tell that story of what's happening in the first half of the decade, but they miss the second half of the decade. And it's a little bit odd because Roberts himself is covering SNCC in this period when they're, when they're going down. And so, you know, there's all this discussion. John Lewis likes the book quite a bit and says, you know, and blurbs it and whatnot. But Gene Roberts um, covered the Stokely Carmichael, the kind of wrap round period of SNCC, you know, quite extensively and quite negatively in the second half of the decade. And so, so it, that part we think is not wrong exactly, but it is very incomplete and somewhat misleading in terms of the heroic account, I guess, of journalists in this period. Yeah. And I, I think more generally what we try and sort of bring into the, you know, when sociologists and others think about like, or even activists think about, well, how do I get good media coverage or how do I get any media coverage? Right. So what they often think about the things that they can do, right? So which tactics do you do or, um, right. Send out a press release petition or whatever, who should we target? Right. We want to get some prominence. Um, but what we're talking about in the book is that groups also need to be thinking about, well, things that are almost out of their control, but like scholars can be thinking about things like the institution of newspapers and how they're organized, uh, the institution of the state, how it's organized. And so talking about newspapers, right, whether or not the editor decides that there should be a race beat, right, this is, or an environmental beat or a labor beat or how many reporters are on the labor beat, right, this is going to determine and help shape the kinds and volume, the volume and the kinds of coverage. Um, if a paper doesn't have a union reporter, they're probably not going to like set, you know, there isn't going to be someone sitting around, you know, just looking for those sorts of stories. Um, and if they, and if they're covering it from the fight, you know, if they only have a finance desk, well, when the, you know, the workers are organizing at Amazon and they get covered by the finance reporter, that's potentially a different story than if they get covered by the union beat story writer, um, who's going to focus on very sort of different elements. Um, so, the sort of organization of news practices matters, you know, a great deal for how they get covered, um, you know, across not just the civil rights movement, but the entire time period. Um, even in the earlier period, like there is, it's not quite beats, but like it was much more of an institution to cover, you know, certain kinds of club meetings. Um, and so the suffrage movement uh, gets a lot of coverage because they were all, you know, meeting on Fifth Avenue at someone's apartment or something like that, or, right, and there's just a, a write-up of, like, you know, they met there and they came there, and that was just sort of how the, um, and heard a speech, right, and the, the you don't see that sort of that genre of article in major newspapers anymore. You might see it in your sort of local newspaper, uh, but not for uh, national organizations and national newspapers, and so, um, 
that sort of the, that structure of newspapers and newspaper reporting sort of matters tremendously for movements. You know, the, the bulk of this book really does focus on the 20th century, but you do talk about the 21st century. Uh, so I don't know if you could speak a little bit about sort of in broad strokes, 21st century movements and how, you know, what, what, what's the difference between, obviously, you know, there's social media and there's a variety of other things that, that alter how social mo- movements occur these days. Um, but, you know, what, what did you learn about the 21st century social movements and their news media coverage? Well, as Neil was saying that we do track how news evolves over time and really there's a kind of evolution of the public sphere which changes dramatically in the 20th century. And so we still look at how the professional news media uh, covers movement actors in this period, but things have changed so, so much that really the the newspapers of form has completely declined. The professional news organizations still do the vast bulk of news gathering, but there's so many, they don't really control what people think about anymore. They used to sort of set the agenda for, you know, what was, what was possible to talk about kind of in public discourse. And now that's not really the case. And so they were, as I think a lot of people note, were knocked down on both sides of their business operation. On the one side, Craigslist and whatnot took away all the ad revenue. On the other side, various internet um, information sites uh, sprang up and made it impossible to really sell newspapers. And so the top organizations, the New York Times and Washington Post, ones we look at pretty closely, have managed to kind of fight their way through this and still be uh, dominant among professional news organizations, but there's so much stuff around them now, especially social media and right-wing disinformation media, which changes really the whole ecology of news and information. I mean, it's not even clear whether to call what is going on in the right-wing um, disinformation sphere as actual news, but it's sort of portrayed as news and taken as such. And so it's a much more difficult world, we think, for especially left-wing movements, because they they get treated more or less the same way by the professional news media, but they'll be really, in various ways, criticized and attempt to be discredited by the right-wing media. And social media often is just kind of piling on in different directions. And so it's, it's a little bit of a different world. Um, we do look at how the Occupy Wall Street and Tea Party were treated, and it was it's almost a situation where the right-wing news media was able to launch a tea party into the professional news media and so it's it's something like that really couldn't happen before and so it's it's a much more difficult place i we think for um uh left-wing movements nowadays just given the entire ecosphere of the media yeah. And so in addition to the ecosphere, one could also look at sort of different styles of organizing over time. And so, for example, right, to compare your Occupy and Tea Party, um, just looking at the organizational attributes, the, uh, you know, the Tea Party was about building sort of local, like meet every month sort of organizations that then became sort of embedded in larger political organizations, right? And so a lot of reoccurring institution building, um, which had a lot of support from the top-down donors, 
Um, so it wasn't just an entirely like grassroots up. It sort of had both ends going at once, um, at which and then uh, which then sort of when reporters either locally or nationally want to, you know, say an issue of tax reform comes up, they're like, oh, like, you know, let's get the Tea Party folks on the line. We can just call them up. We know who they are. Um, right. And, you know, they have large national organizations as well uh, that we can chat with. Um, in contrast, it is sort of more common among certain styles of the left to have like, you know, sort of best exemplified by Occupy Wall Street to have sort of very minimal sorts of organizations um, and no sort of longstanding bureaucracies. So if you, you know, if there was a census report about income inequality that came out um, today, I don't think there's a single reporter who would say like, oh, I'm going to call Occupy Wall Street because I know their phone number or their email, right? It's sort of, it doesn't exist as a, like a thing that people can call. Um, and we see that, right, versus, um, which can be tricky for, again, you know, more contemporary movements as well, like the Black Lives Matter movements, where there's plenty of local organizations, but uh, that are around, uh, but not necessarily national spokespeople that are embedded in organizations the way something even like the NRA, an organization which is, you know, organizationally potentially discredited, but still, you know, in terms of sort of financial issues and things like that, but still is a thing that everyone expects them to speak on gun control, um, you know, just because of their organizational presence and bureaucracy and all these other stuff that they've uh, placed themselves. I'm wondering, since this, this book came out, how you're sort of, you know, if there's things or in the news media or, you know, related to, to movements, uh, that have surprised you or things that, that, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to ask you guys to speak on something that you haven't, haven't written on, but, you know, I, I'm wondering if there's things that you've seen recently, uh, you know, in the media, just really related to coverage, you know, either the Black Lives Matter movement, th- these sorts of things, like if any perspective that you guys can, can bring to that in terms of media coverage and what you see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could just say I've, I've read a decent amount of, um, Black Lives Matter coverage and what appear to be, and particularly sort of the wave associated with George Floyd and then earlier time periods. Um, and you can certainly see there, there's a very sort of different, um, you know, when looking at those, that coverage of protest events, uh, quite often reporters seem to be struggling if there is any to find like local organizations or people to do, particularly for the more spontaneous events. Um, but, uh, but you can just tell, you know, again, to the sort of, you know, with the beat thing in the back of my mind, right, that there, that sometimes the sort of more police beat oriented one will sort of lead with that sort of like, you know, how, what were the police protester interactions, even when they weren't particularly contentious events. Uh, um, and then when you can see the more general assignment city reporter person, it will lead with the, you know, you know, 45 people marched hand in hand down the street yesterday in order to, you know, just a more sort of positive, like, oh, this is a civic event, right? And so when it's covered from that frame um, or that default, um, it begins to, you get a very different sense just reading the paper. You can say like, oh, right, this is going to, you know, this has, as a reader, I'm getting a good vibe here um, of togetherness versus the other ones that say marching, you know, lead with police or, you know, um, so... That's one thing that I've been uh, observing. Right. And the Black Lives Matter coverage, which took place over a very long period of time because of the extensive protests there were. And so it was really something that was 
similar in some ways to protest campaigns of 1960s and whatnot, in that it was a long-running story in the news. And the professional news media did really try, I think, to be a little bit more balanced than in the past, tried to bring out messages, but still at the same time, you know, they showed quite a lot of images of disruption and whatnot, and that these things often led on television. And mentioning back to this news media ecosystem, that the right-wing disinformation media really, you know, played that up tremendously. And so even if the professional news media, I think, tried to do something more, tried to be more substantive about this and take this more seriously often than it does with regular protests, that the overall projection of what was going on given right-wing media and the piling on by social media was really probably not as favorable to the movement as it you might have expected um, just working from the professional news media alone. So I think this is get, gets back to some extent to the different kind of ecosystem we're in where it's a, a different political, a polarized political system and with such a strong presence of right-wing disinformation media that it, it really poses different problems in some ways for movement actors. Yeah, it seems like the New York Post and the other sort of Murdoch stuff is to this day is a continual long, like conducting their own investigation into Black Lives Matter and various financial, you know, how can they dig up more dirt on it and in order to sustain those sorts of stories. So, uh, which then sort of filter out through social media. Um, let alone the other sorts of coverage focusing on violence or um, as reoccurring themes um, that get sent out there. You know, something I'm, I'm wondering is in the course of working on this and, and even, you know, after publication, you know, if the two of you find yourself, if there's anything that you find yourself in maybe disagreement about or, you know, anyth anything that, that uh, you know, Edwin, anything Neil says that you're like, I, I don't know how you think that based on data or vice versa. <laughs> Something that we disagree about. I don't know. I can't think of anything offhand. Maybe Neil has something. Neil Neil has actually studied more closely Black Lives Matter than I have. So he might have a different take on it. Mine is more just from reading the news sort of thing. So it's quite possible that my view may be a little bit too much influenced, you know, just by my reading and watching of things and not through a more kind of detailed examination might be a little bit <laughs> more uh, emotionally reactive or something and less data driven. <laughs> I don't know, Neil, what do you think? Uh, yeah, no, I haven't come up with anything yet, but now maybe I'll start a list of areas where you're wrong, but the, um, no, but I'm perfectly willing to admit that I'm wrong, like that my view might be of the, um, you know, of, of various coverage of the last decade or whatever, Black Lives Matter might be, you know, wrong because I spend a lot of time reading the local newspaper. And so when you read a hundred stories from different newspapers, it's like, all right, so this is the sense of things. But it's like, or you could look at, or one Fox story where he reaches 10 times as many people, uh, one evening segment or morning segment, right, on, on one of their programs. And so in terms of like overall impact, right, that um, it doesn't matter if there's all these local reporters doing good work. Uh, because the sort of national story and the dominant na motive narrative is driven by um, 
you know, those different set of actors than the ones I'm looking at, um, which is why sort of in the book, it's sort of, it's a little bit easier because we're only focusing on these four papers that are sort of national, you know, largely throughout this time period are the influence makers um, and the set of papers that sort of elites would have been expected to read. Um, and that were the dominant players in the time. So it has the, um, uh, among the print media. So sort of, it, it's a nice set of papers um, to look at. And so essentially this study would be much harder, uh, you know, to do, you know, looking at the 2015 to 2025, um, you, you know, it'd be much tougher to say like, well, here's the four major things you need to focus on. And they're telling a similar story, not at all. Before we uh, wrap up, I'd just like to ask if there's anything that the two of you are, you know, either together or independently, what you're working on now or what you plan on, uh, you know, publishing in the future. Uh, well, I'm looking at Black Lives Matter coverage. Um, and so uh, for one project um, and sort of looking at right the ways that they get covered and the sort of different, uh, the other information that we can get from newspapers, you know, how we can turn the stories and look at them into events and things like that. So um, sort of still in the newspaper media world, uh, plus Edwin and I have some other sort of ongoing media projects as well. Right. And I'm uh, working with Neil on some ongoing media projects, as well as a book with Francesca Paletta on the cultural consequences of movements. And this is a book that does it look, it will look at news coverage, but other things as well, such as uh, influence of movements on public opinion, influence of movements on practice of corporations in, in not just changes in policy, but like how groups are talked about in policy. So it uh, jumps off a little bit from the news attention, which we also view as a kind of cultural consequence of movements, but um, expands out to some of these other uh, different outcomes that movements are trying to influence. You know, they're always trying to, you know, social movements have often a quite a wide, wide set of aims. And, uh, and many of these are specifically cultural ones that we're trying to get a handle on. Thank you both so much for being guests on the New Books Network. It was great talking to you. And I think for our listeners, this is a, a I think a really great book uh, that does a great job of just putting into context uh, news media coverage. And I think that regardless of whether or not a person is a, a sociologist or a political scientist or just a lay reader, uh, they'll find something very valuable in this. So thank you. All right, well, thank you for, uh, for having us here and for your kind words. And book is available at Princeton University Press. Yeah, thanks. And we also, this has been fun. We, yeah, it's been great. We also have um, in the show notes, uh, there'll, there'll be a link uh, to, to uh, the book. So uh, it will be available there as well for, for listeners. So thank you. Great. Thanks so much. This was really, really um, fun to talk about and interesting things for your questions. Yeah.